We are in the middle of a study going through the book of Hebrews, so we're Hebrews chapter 7 today, um, a thrilling text. Uh, it's a little bit of my spiritual gift of sarcasm coming out. Actually, it really is a thrilling text if you give it its due, uh, but not one of those that, that jumps out at us immediately as, as, as some passages do. Like last week's passage, Christ is an anchor of his soul. That, that's not, we'll put that on the refrigerator, but you know, when we start talking about Melchizedek, Maybe not so much, right? The Bible, after all, is full of names, lots of names in the Bible, and some of those names really do resonate with Christians uh, because of their significance in the the biblical storyline. Some names are even recognizable to people who are believers uh, uh, in Christ, right? Names like Abraham and Sarah, Moses, uh, Ruth, David, Mary, Paul. We could keep going with a number more of, of other names as well. But, but some of those, these names in the Bible, they, they stand out. They are very familiar to us, and others are not. Melchizedek would fall into the latter category, right? And, and yet the author of Hebrews believes Melchizedek, his, his is a significant name nonetheless, a, a name that will serve, to, serve us to, to come to a deeper understanding, a deeper grasp, a deeper appreciation of the gospel, Beginning in chapter 5, uh, as we looked at earlier in this series, the, the, the preacher of this sermon, that is really the book of Hebrews, it's really more like a sermon than a letter, uh, he repeatedly begins referring to Jesus as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? He does that in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, he does it again in chapter 5, verse 10, and as we saw last week, he, he does it once more in Hebrews six twenty. And here in Hebrews 7, he's going to unpack for us the the wonderful significance of what it means that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which I'm sure for most of you at this moment sounds absolutely thrilling, all right? You're you're excited. Um, That's sarcasm. You are allowed to laugh still, even in the mask. Um, maybe the jokes are just not that good. Uh, but, but it is significant. It is significant. And we, and we need to understand the, uh, the context and the perspective uh, of the author and his original hearers a little bit better. Right? Really, if we, if we would be better students of the Bible ourselves, we, we might grasp what the author and his original readers grasp right away about the significance uh, of this, this Melchizedek. Uh, for, for us, though, think, think about what it's like when you see something extraordinary for the first time. You learn something new um, for the very first time that, that really resonates with you, that you're excited about. Or, or you, you behold the, the, the wonder of the ocean for the first time, or you see the, the mountains for the very first time. Just kind of what that does to you, how that kind of captivates you. When I got to see Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe at the end of a mission trip in 1998, many, many moons ago. Uh, it was so inspiring, so breathtaking that, that God actually used that beholding of Victoria Falls to kind of communicate to me that Crystal was supposed to be my wife, right? She had a boyfriend at the time, so there was some details we had to work through, but, but, but it was illuminating. It was, it was transformative. The, the realization, though, that the author of Hebrews comes to between this connection between Melchizedek and Jesus is, is for him and for his original hearers, likewise, illuminating, inspiring, transformative. And it can be for us, too, if we will seek to listen and understand 
God can use it to make Jesus and the gospel even more beautiful for us today. So let's dig into our text. Uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I invite you to stand with me, turn there in your Bibles, and, and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. By the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own today, we do have some free copies, I believe, at the connection table, and encourage you to grab one of those on your way out. would love to give that to you as a gift today. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your wonderful sovereign plan and the intricacies of every last detail of your plan and the wonderful things that you enable us to see in that plan, the connections that, that can be made when we, are, we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us those eyes to see and ears to hear today, the, the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. This wonderful connection that, that, that lifts up Jesus even more beautiful before our eyes, that, that helps us to see him as king of righteousness, king of peace, as our, as our great high priest who prays and bestows righteousness and peace into our lives. They're continual outworking into our lives day by day. Jesus, we are grateful for you. We pray that you'd help us to love you more today and to live for you more boldly. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may have a seat. Well, as we, uh, as we saw at the end of, of chapter six, we, we have great encouragement and assurance as Christians that we are not on our own in the storms of life. Amen. You are not on your own in the storms of this life that, that we are journeying through. That, that is the, the great assurance and encouragement that we have as Christians. And no matter what comes our way, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Beautiful words. But it leaves us with a question, naturally, that most of us would ask. Who is Melchizedek, right? Who, who is this Melchizedek? And at the open of this chapter, chapter 7, that's the question that the author is, is answering for us. Who is Melchizedek? And, and he answers, this, answers it for us by taking us back to the only historical mention, historical account of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Now, there's another mention of him, but it doesn't really give us much of a detail about his life. Uh, And this this historical mention is found in Genesis chapter 14. So the context of Genesis 14, the author kind of keys us in on here, is Abraham has just slaughtered this coalition of Canaanite kings, right? These Canaanite, evil Canaanite kings had come and taken all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and along with that, they'd actually kidnapped and taken hostage uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. And Abraham gets word that Lot has been taken, and he assembles a squad, we're told in Genesis 14, of 318 trained men, right? The, think 300, right? Kind of that sort of thing. And, and they track these evil kings down, slaughter them, take all their possessions, take all the spoils from that victory, and they rescue Lot. They rescue him. Abraham is returning from this victory when he meets Melchizedek. And we read this in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it, right? That's, that's all we get about Melchizedek. That's, that's the background. That's the information we have about who this person is. That's the only historical mention of him in the entire Old Testament. That's all we know about him. Yet here is Abraham. Abraham, right? Allowing Melchizedek to bless him. And then in return, Abraham gives him a tenth of, of all the spoils of victory that he has just won. This is the only mention of him until about a thousand years later uh, when King David writes in the Psalms about him. Psalm 110 verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God was declaring in Psalm 110 through David that he was going to do something new. He's going to do something new. And that his intention was to bring into history one who would be a priest like Melchizedek. One who would be both priest and king like Melchizedek. And and like Melchizedek, his priesthood would last forever. And it would be appointed directly by God himself. Not from his heritage, not from his ancestry, but from God. And all of this was divinely guaranteed, David, David tells us there in Psalm 110. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He's going to do this. And the author of Hebrews is here looking at Genesis 14 and looking at Psalm 110 and, and looking at Jesus. And he's putting it all together. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
the preacher of Hebrews is, is seeing this connection. He's, he's putting this connection together, the first person to do this in the, in the history of the world. It's illuminating. It's transformative for him. And now he's, he's sharing this insight to encourage these first century Jewish Christian believers who are, are facing intense suffering, intense persecution. They're facing temptations to kind of turn away from the Lord, to kind of back out on their faith. And he's, he's using this insight to, to encourage them to hold fast to their faith, to cling to Jesus, who's the, their anchor for the soul. The author seeks to, to encourage them by showing them the, the significance of Melchizedek in order to show them the supremacy of Christ. So first, we see the significance of Melchizedek. First, we're told here in, in Hebrews 7, as well as in Genesis 14, that Melchizedek was both king of Salem and, and priest of the Most High God. Right? He's a, he's a king-priest. Which, uh, which sets him apart from, from any other priest or king in, in the history of Israel, right? In fact, other than Jesus and Melchizedek, no one in the Bible is, is identified as both king and priest. This is, this is very unique. The Old Testament law dictated rather strictly that no priest could lawfully act as king and no king could lawfully act as priest, and Isaiah 6, we referenced Isaiah 6 at the beginning of our gathering today. Right? The, the wonderful passage of Isaiah's vision of the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Well, it begin, that passage begins in Isaiah 6, verse 1, like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That first part there, in the year that King Uzziah died. Second Chronicles 26 tells us the reason that King Uzziah died was because he defied God's law as king by acting as a priest. As a result, he, he was struck with leprosy. He was cut off from his people until his eventual death. There was a God-designed, God-instituted divide between the roles of king and priest in Israel. Yet Hebrews 7 and Genesis 14 tell us Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. Of course, Melchizedek comes before Israel exists, right? You understand that. Uh, before God gives the Israelites the law, he, he's not part of Israel himself, He's, he's not. And we're told that he is both king and priest. And as king and priest, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. This is also significant. Uh, as verse 7 points out, that it was a well-known uh, cultural understanding, right? That, that the greater one always blesses the lesser one. That the one who gives the blessing is greater than the one who receives the blessing. And here is Melchizedek blessing Abraham. Think about how astounding that is. Abraham, the, the patriarch of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, the, the head of the old covenant with God. Abraham is the one who, as verse 6 reminds us, had the promises directly from God himself. Abraham is the one to whom God came to and said, Abraham, I promise I am going to make you into a great nation. 
I'm going to give you the land of promise. I I am going to bless all of the nations through you. I'm going to bless you so that you, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those are the promises given to Abraham. Yet the author of Hebrews in Genesis 14 show us Melchizedek, a non-Israelite king, as the superior blessing the inferior Abraham. Not only does his blessing of Abraham show his significance, but, but he also receives a, a tithe, the gift from Abraham as well. Abraham himself recognizes the superior greatness of Melchizedek in that moment and offers him a tithe from the spoils of his war that he's just won. And this is no small gift. This is not a tip, right? Sometimes in our giving, we, we, we give God a tip. We don't really generously give to him. This is no tip. Literally in the Greek, it says here that he gave the best tenth of the spoils. The top of the heap is literally what it translates to in the Greek. The best of the best from the spoils of victory he gives to Melchizedek. This is, this is a generous offering. Knowing that, that some of his Jewish Christian hearers might diminish this by saying something along the line of like, hey, what's, what's so great about that? Levitical priests collect tithes too, right? We know about that. The author of Hebrews goes further here in verses 5 and 6. He says, And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the, from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. The author's point is that, that the Levite's ability to collect the tithes came from God's commandment in the law and not from any sort of natural superiority. But Melchizedek is totally different. There's no commandment here. He's, he's not a descendant of the Levite's or a descendant of Abraham. He, he, yet he receives tithes, not from the people, but from Abraham himself. Continuing on here in verse 8, it says, In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. In, order, in other words, since the Bible says nothing about Melchizedek's end, he represents a living priesthood, a priesthood that endures. And then it continues, and it gets a little bit weird. You might have noticed that in our reading earlier in verses 9 and 10. Uh, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right? What? Right? That's, that's, the, that's the appropriate reaction to that initially. Uh, the author of Hebrews appeals to a common belief in this culture, right, that the ancestor contained all of his descendants within himself. And so therefore, his point is, you could say that when Abraham was paying that tithe to Melchizedek, Levi was also paying that tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek. The point made is that even the Levitical priesthood bows, recognizes the superiority, the, the significance of Melchizedek's priesthood. 
because it paid tithes to him in advance. And all of, us is, all of this is, is showing us the significance of Melchizedek and the, the superior nature of his priesthood to that of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament. And, and we'll get more into that uh, and unpack that a little bit more next week. Buckle up, just I know you're excited. Um, but perhaps nothing in this passage highlights the significance and superiority of Melchizedek as much as what we find in verse 2 where it says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Often in, in the Bible, uh, we discover deeper significance to names than we might first realize. After all, like, we live in a culture where oftentimes, you know, lots of babies, lots of babies have been born recently. You have to ask uh, the Leffels and the Siglins about the, the significance of the names there, and, and I know there are some significance with their names, but oftentimes uh, we name our kids things because it sounds great, or, you know, uh, we, we knew somebody we liked with that name or whatever. Um, but in the Bible, oftentimes, names carry a much deeper meaning, right? They're, they're given because of what they mean, the meaning of the, the actual name is significant. And, and, and we're pointed to this glorious truth that, that, is, that is sitting right under our noses as we keep hearing this name, Melchizedek, 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 over and over again. His name literally means, in the Hebrew, king of righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That's his name. His very name pointed to the reality that he was a righteous king. He's also the king of Salem, which is actually Salem becomes Jerusalem. But the, the, the name Salem means peace. He's the king of Salem. He's the king of peace. The king of righteousness, the king of peace. It's, it's all right there in his name and in his title. In verse 3 Right? He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 3 may at first seem like it's telling us that somehow Melchizedek was, was also immortal. Right? He, just, he has no beginning, has no end, he just goes on living. But digging deeper, uh, that's not really the point of verse 3. Verse 3 is not focused on his personhood, it's focused on his priesthood. His priesthood. It's telling us that Melchizedek was a priest, not because his father was a priest, not because he descends from Aaron and the Levites, nor was he a priest who had successors who his sons went on to become priests because he was a priest. No, his priesthood was unprecedented. Melchizedek was a priest by divine appointment, by God's direct calling and appointment. He enters into the book of Genesis as if he has no mother or father or children, and it, and it serves as a stark contrast to the priesthood of Israel that was totally dependent upon Levitical ancestry. Melchizedek's priesthood was, has nothing to do with ancestry or descent. God appoints, God himself ordains him a priest, and thus his priesthood continues forever. The author of Hebrews is showing us the significance of Melchizedek in order to point us to the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus. 
Melchizedek is a king. But we know, I hope you know, that Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Melchizedek was a priest king, something no Levite could ever be, no Israelite could ever be. But Jesus comes as the ultimate priest king. Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 110 as both king and priest. If you read the full Psalm 110, it talks about him being a king as well as a priest. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and he's also called king of peace. But Jesus, Isaiah 9, 6, is the prince of peace. 1 John 2, 1, he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus brings righteousness and peace together in his person. Psalm 85.10 looks ahead at the coming of Christ and, and saying that in him, in Jesus, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. Melchizedek was called king of righteousness, but here's the thing. He had no power to ever make anyone righteous. But Jesus is righteousness. He is righteousness. He's the essence, the sum, and the source of righteousness. And as the true king of righteousness, he alone is able to give to you his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. And and listen to me, you need it. You need his righteousness. Because no matter how good of a week you think you've had, right? If you're honest, it's still been a week plagued with sin. It's still been a week where on your own, you would stand condemned before a holy God, unable to be in his presence. You and I, all of us, have given in to sin this week. Pride. Selfishness. Lust, worry. I just moved my oldest son into McNutt, right? My week has been plagued with worry. Uh, and yes, I'm old, uh, right? Greed, self-righteousness. But that's just it. There is no self righteousness. There is no amount of good that you can do that undoes the sin that you're guilty of, that you stand justly under God's condemnation of on your own apart from Christ. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. On your own, you fall short. You're a sinner who stands deserving of God's just judgment for your sin. You deserve wrath. You deserve hell. You deserve eternal separation from God. And apart from Jesus, that is absolutely what you will have. But Jesus is the king of righteousness, the true king of righteousness, and and the only true king of righteousness. He is able to give you and bless you with his righteousness. If you simply turn from your sin and trust in him and his finished work. Turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus in faith. 
Melchizedek was the king of Salem, that is the king of peace, but, but he was incapable of actually giving anyone peace. Jesus is the prince of peace, the true king of peace. He is the essence, the sum, and the source of all peace. And there is no peace apart from him. Right? And the king of peace, and as the king of peace, he's able to give you his peace. He's able to make peace between you and God. His peace follows his righteousness. It, it never comes apart from it or before it. Uh, and you need his peace. Right? You need his peace. You know that. You're not able to make peace happen in your own strength. You're not able to undo and settle all the storms of suffering and injustice in this world. Many of us realize we're not able to even settle the storms uh, uh, that, are, that are taking place within our own minds and hearts and souls. We recognize that. We need the blessing of Christ's peace, and he is able to give it to us. For in Jesus, Jesus' righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've come together perfectly in him. For Jesus Christ, the righteous, came to live the sinless life that you never could. The righteous life that you need. He lived in your place. Yet he willingly exchanged that righteousness for your sin and went to the cross to die the death that you deserve in payment of your debt for you. And he was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And by faith, by faith in his finished work, Jesus is able to give you his righteousness. After all, he's displayed that he alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord of lords. He, he alone is the true king of righteousness, the true king of peace. He's able to clothe you in his righteousness to declare you forgiven, accepted, and righteous before God, welcomed into his presence, able to come boldly before him, asking him for anything. And by faith in him, he's able to give you peace, his peace, peace with God, restored relationship with God as God's beloved child, and even peace with one another in the body of Christ, to, where we're able to grow day by day. It's not perfect peace yet, but we're able to grow day by day in living out and living in his peace together. Peace be with you, Jesus says after his resurrection in, John, in John's gospel. He says to his disciples, peace be with you. And he's able to say that to you as well. Peace be with you. He's the true king of righteousness and the true king of priests. But Jesus isn't only king, he's also a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He, he has secured righteousness and peace for all those who put their hope in him. And now Jesus devotes himself in his unending priesthood at the right hand of the Father where he is ascended in heaven right now. He, he can, offers his continual high priestly prayer for the working out of righteousness and peace in the life of Christians, in the lives of believers. That's what the author is saying. He's, he's an anchor for your soul there that assures you that you will survive the raging storms of this life. You will. You may lose your life, 
This earthly life is not guaranteeing that you'll always be healthy, wealthy, and, and well. You may lose your earthly life, but you will pass through to a better life in a better kingdom where you will live face to face with the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace. That's the anchor. That's the hope. That's the encouragement. And Jesus stands ready to bless you today with righteousness and peace. But just like Abraham was with Melchizedek, in order to receive the blessing, you first have to acknowledge that that Jesus, he is greater. He is greater than you. You need him. You need his blessing. He doesn't need yours. You need his blessing. He is greater. You have to recognize Christ's supremacy and you have to submit yourself to him and embrace him as Savior, Lord, and King in order to receive his blessing. And if you've already done that, you're a Christian, you've you've already yielded your life to Christ, surrendered your life to Christ, you've received that blessing, then the only right response is to continually give to Jesus, not just a tithe, not just a tip, but to continue increasingly to give all of yourself, to seek to give all of yourself to him in service of him, in worship of him, day by day seeking to live for his glory. May his giving of himself to you enable you and empower you to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, for your grand design and plan to work all things together for your glory and our good. We're thankful for how you see, foot, see fit to, to put your word together and to highlight seemingly insignificant characters to help us better see the surpassing greatness of your son. And Jesus, thank you for being our priest king, our true king of righteousness and peace, who stands ready to bless us with the righteousness and peace we so desperately need. Holy Spirit, enable us to receive your blessing. Move us to yield our hearts and lives to the kingship of Jesus. Enable enable us to live for you more and more, helping others to experience the healing kiss of righteousness and peace that can only be found in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.